All right, guys, we're we're back again. It's um, it's the very first episode of Fitzy Friday on the uh on the channel. So, uh, channel podcast, whatever, whatever you call these things. Um, all right. So, doing the story Head and Shoulders, um, which was first published in 1920. He wrote it in 1919 after he um, finally sold his first novel to Scribner's, but this story did come out before that in the Saturday Evening Post. Um, got, a, got a good amount of notes for this one, mainly mainly quotes. Um, I, I, I love Fitzgerald, like the way he, uh, well, just I love Fitzgerald, just everything. Um, um, particularly in his like writings. Um, obviously, there's there's always going to be some stuff you don't agree with about um, things that people did or how they acted. Um, particularly um, when you're talking about someone who was around like a hundred years ago. You know, there's things that were okay to do then that that aren't okay to do now. Um, we've we've all learned and. Well, not all of us, but many of us have learned. And uh, before this gets too preachy, I'm just going to cut that off. I think you guys kind of understand where I'm going. Um, some of his stories do have some uh, language and such things that are not not considered appropriate now. It shouldn't have been considered appropriate then, but um, that's a digression and a soapbox for another day. So head and shoulders. Um... It was it was collected in Flappers and Philosophers later in 1920. Um, Scribner's um, Fitzgerald's publisher, Scribner's, um, usually put out a collection of short stories after after each novel. Um, it was one of their practices um, to kind of help boost boost sales um, and get the author's name out more. Um, they usually did like three to six months after after the novel came out. They would collect the stories that the author had written that had appeared in magazines and such and this was one of those such stories um there are two main characters to this story um it's told more from it's it's third person but it's told from the point of view of horace tarbox um before i before i get too far into this um i'm going to talk about my talk, talk briefly about my coffee for the day you know i'm not um I'm definitely not sponsored by any of these guys, but just I like to um I want to tell you guys what I'm what I'm drinking. This is cafe all of it. So um it's still very, very hot, so I'm not drinking it yet, actually. I just picked it up and yeah. Um but it's a Sumatran Mandeling, and I probably pronounced that horribly, but it's a Kroger private selection um coffee. So it's it's a it's as far as like coffee, like taste to price ratio goes, I think you just about can't beat the uh, some of the private selection um, options from Kroger, um, particularly with coffee. But I'm sure that with other things, it's fine too. I believe that's their like store brand. Um, could be wrong on that. But back to Head and Shoulders. Um, Horace Tarbox. Uh, as a main character, like I said, um, it's written in third person, but he does kind of come from his uh, point of view, more or less. Um, 
course, was a child prodigy, intellectually gifted. He gets accepted to Princeton at the age of 13. Um, let's see. The story, in the story, over the course of the story, like near the beginning, he meets a girl named Marsha Meadows, who is a chorus girl. Um, she's like a dancer on, on the stage in like programs. Um, the title comes from Head and Shoulders. Horace is the head. Marsha is the shoulders. He's the intellectual one. Um, probably doesn't need to explain him. He's the intellectual one. Um, and then she is like the physical one as far as like how they make their money. Um, if you haven't read this story, I, I encourage you to go ahead and do it. This is this story is way too long um, for me to read as I go, as I've done, as I did with the Hemingway story uh, earlier this week. And as I'm going to be doing with another Hemingway story on Sunday, um, Cody's coming back on the podcast and uh, we got that one. We got that one recorded as well. Um, so it's another Hemingway story coming Sunday. So looking forward to that. Um, I'm just going to give you a quick summary. Um, there will be plenty of spoilers in, in this if you haven't read it. So you can find it online free, easy. Just search Head and Shoulders F. Scott Fitzgerald, and you should have no trouble at all finding it. It's in Flappers and Philosophers if you're looking to find a book with it in it. And then after you read it, you can uh, come back. Or if you just just want to listen and don't really care about spoilers, then um, stick around. Um, so it's summary of the story, like a very, very loose, brief summary. Um, it's when he first meets Marsha, he mistakes, um, Horace mistakes her for the laundry girl. Um, and there's some, there's some good, good quotes. Um, in that but uh horse is basically at his apartment he's just he's just he's just chilling the only way he knows how by uh believe he's reading or otherwise working on on some sort of thing um scholarly but he um he meets her and the quote is Um, he uh someone raps on the door he just hears like a he hears like a knocking on the door and he says come in then um as he heard the door open and then close but bent over his book in the big armchair before the fire he did not look up leave it on the bed in the other room he said absently leave what on the bed in the other room Marsha Meadow had to talk her songs but her speaking voice was but like byplay on a harp the laundry I can't Horace stirred impatiently in his chair. Why can't you? Why, because I haven't got it. Hmm, he replied testily. Suppose you go back and get it. Across the fire from Horace was another easy chair. He was accustomed to change he was accustomed to change to it in the course of an evening by way of exercise and variety. One chair he called Berkeley, the other he called Hume. Um, the Berkeley and Hume are references to um Berkeley was an Irish philosopher who was known for like immaterialism. Um it it denies, which denies the existence of material substance. Um, Hume was named after a Scottish philosopher known for uh, philosophical empiricism and skepticism. I'm not going to get into all of all of that um, one because I'm not super knowledgeable on those subjects 
or even remotely knowledgeable on those subjects. And the other reason is it's it's not necessarily important that we go further into that, but it's I think it's important to note like his character. It like he's such an academic that he named his armchairs after philosophers, which seems absurd. And uh, well, it, it is. If any of you guys out there have named your armchairs, let me know. I would I would love to hear hear the names. Um, I will only judge you a little bit. No. Um. But like you know you know like some people are car guys. They'll like name their cars. Like some guitar players will name their guitars. Like or just musicians name their instruments in general. Um, I guess it's the same sort of thing. Like if if you just yeah, I don't even know how further further to go go into that. But um, let's see. He finally glances up. Well, said Marsha with the sweet smile she used in Act Two. Um, well, Omar, she calls him Omar. <laughs> she doesn't ask it. I think she knows his name from because it's it's Horace's cousin's the one that sets him up. So I think he uh. She calls him Omar, even though she knows his name. And he says, here I am beside you singing in the wilderness. I'm thinking that Omar was the character. I'm assuming that's a reference to act two of the play. She was, she was in, um, but I'm not certain on that. Like just speculation. Uh, says, Horace stared at her dazedly. The momentary suspicion came to him that she existed there only as a phantom of his imagination. When di women didn't come into men's rooms and sink into men's humes. Women brought laundry and took your seat in the streetcar and married you later on when you were old enough to know fetters. It's, uh, I mean, he's still very young. He's 17 at this moment. Um, but he has a very, very negative, uh, view of marriage and maybe women to an extent as well. Um, maybe from all those books he's read, he's, um, especially in the twenties, if he's reading stuff. Well, the story starts in, it was like, just before, it was like 1918, 1919 at this point in the story. And so I guess going around at the time, this was just before like women's rights, I believe. Um, if I remember my history correctly. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I could probably do an entire episode just on like his attitudes. Um, this is this is an overview uh, another rambling one already it seems but um let's see for pete's sake don't look so critical objected the emanation pleasantly i feel as if you're going to wish me away with that patent dome of yours and then there wouldn't be anything left of me except my shadow in your eyes horace coughed coughing was one of his two gestures when he talked, you forgot he had a body at all. This is setting up uh, later in the story, and I guess I never really fully did that. Um, I never uh, did the summary fully, but basically they start out as head and shoulders. Um, they get together. Horace is the head. Marsha is the shoulders. As the story progresses, though, Horace transforms from like a highbrow, intellectually adept boy of academia um, is what I put in my paper on this, um, for, for college uh, a year or two ago. And he only uses his brain and not his body 
Um, but then eventually the, the fun part, the fun reveal at the end of the story is that you see them slowly start to um, switch places. Um, and my paper was, was, was about that. I did a draft of my paper called The Transformation of the Tar Boxes, um, which I thought was an infinitely clever title the time and I'm still I'm still a little bit proud of it if I'm if I'm honest but um it's it's interesting it's cool from like a craft perspective and um it wasn't necessarily like academic enough for like a literature class I think it would it's more like entertaining like that that subject is more of like a writing uh, type of look at it, I think, which I, I mean, as a writer, I do tend to view stories from the point of a, of a, of a writer when I'm, when I'm looking at them, I'm like, man, I wish I could have done that. Like it, this is, this is something really cool that Fitzgerald does in the story where he, he slowly gets them to switch places. And by the end of the story, um, Marsha ends up selling a book and Horace ends up being like a trapeze a trapeze artist basically like a gymnast um so like he goes from when he talked you forgot he had a body at all to the end of the story um in which he just <laughs> mr mrs tarbuck tarbox supplies the literary and mental qualities while the supple and agile shoulders of her husband contribute their share to the family fortunes um, and he's called a prodigy in the beginning, and one of the last lines of the story, Mr. Tarbuck, Mrs. Tarbox seems to merit that much-abused title, prodigy. Um, so by the end of the story, Marsha is is the prodigy, and they've, they've switched places. Um, there's also, I might, this probably will be a long episode, because I do want to go over um, the other paper on the story. It was called Fitzgerald's Fear of Raps. Um, and there's there's several instances in this story, and I think I'm going to start there with um, this was this story was written as he was as he was um, trying to win back win back Zelda, who ended up he ended up marrying obviously, and he um, you could see some like trepidation in the story, and I might be reading too much into it, um, but I know Fitzgerald was definitely used his life as influence. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch to, um, to think about the story this way as like Fitzgerald worrying about what might happen if he gets married. It doesn't stop him from wanting to get married at all. But I think, I think he's sort of thinking through like, um, it's kind of putting his fears down. Um, let's see the first, the first rap on the rap on the door is, um, in fact, his only, Reaction to a low, clear-cut rap at his study was to make him speculate as to whether any rap would have actual existence without an ear there to hear it. Um, it's kind of like, it's, it's, he's definitely like the philosopher, very much so at this point. So this this particular first rap, um, or knock on the door, is, um, it, it, it's, it's a character, it's a character signifier, like he, because he literally just thinks of it as, um, he philosophizes about it. Like if a tree were to fall in the forest and no one was around to hear it, did it really like fall? Like, you know, stuff like stupid stuff like that, that like you can philosophize about for hours, but in the end, it's just, it doesn't matter. Um, let's see. Then go closer to the end of the stories is how he would have gaped at himself a year before. 
how everyone would have gaped. But when you opened your door at the wrath of life, you let in many things. It's at this point where he's already, um, he's already started doing the trapeze work and, um, he, uh, he's kind of like thinking back on like how he, he like never thought he would, he would end up in that situation. Um, and on the next page, it's, this is not a wrap, but uh, Horace Tarbox, Horace Tarbox's torso made its first professional appearance. He is fully transformed into shoulders at this point. Um, here, where is, uh, there's, there's two more things about, about raps in this one. And uh, he had meant to write a series of books to popularize the new realism as Schopenhauer had popularized pessimism and William James pragmatism. But life hadn't come that way. Life took hold of people and forced them into flying rings. He laughed to think of that rap at his door, the diaphanous shadow in Hume, Marsh's threatened kiss, which is something we need to go back to um, next, I believe. Um, and it's still me, he said aloud in wonder as he lay awake in the darkness. I'm the man who sat in Berkeley with temerity to wonder if that rap would have had actual existence had my ear not been there to hear it. I'm still that man. I could be electrocuted for the crimes I've committed, or for, for the crimes he committed. He mentions himself in third person, sort of there. Um, the very last lines of the story, his, his former, um, like, idol... Anton Laurier comes to comes to visit Marsha because he's read her book and he just wants to tell her how magnificent it is. And he's like, oh, Horace, I've heard of you, too. You were mentioned in the paper, um, in the article in the paper about about Marsha's book. Um, and the, the article is uh, what reads Marsha Tarbox's connection with the stage is not only as a spectator, but as the wife of a performer. She was married last year to Horace Tarbox, who every morning delights the children at the Hippodrome with his wondrous flying ring performance. It is said that the young couple have dubbed themselves head and shoulders, referring doubtless to the fact that Mrs. Tarbox supplies the literary and mental qualities, while the supple and agile shoulders of her husband contribute their share to the family fortunes. And then um, down later, he tells, he tells Anton Laurier, he says, I want to advise you, he began hoarsely. What? Anton Laurier asked him about raps don't answer them let them alone have a padded door um you kind of get the sense that he he definitely regrets the way his life's gone maybe he doesn't specifically regret marrying Marsha, but he regrets what it's done to him for sure and i wonder if fitzgerald was worried if marrying zelda would change him and like his ambitions as a writer it, i was one i wonder if he was like kind of worrying about whether um, whether it would it would hurt him artistically, for lack of a better way to say that. Um, let's see, the kissing thing that was mentioned in one of those raps. Um, okay. it does mention his other gesture, like the one the one gesture is um, coughing. His his second gesture is. He, he uh, paces the room with the hands in his pockets. Um, I left you guys hanging on the on the other line there. Um, I thought this would be much more organized, but alas. Settle in, folks. I hope you brought your coffee, too, because you're going to need it. Stay awake.
bench press just hits different. Um, okay. No, interrupted Marcia emphatically. And you're a sweet boy. Come here and kiss me. Horace stopped quickly in front of her. Why do you want me to kiss you? He asked intently. Do you just go around kissing people? Why, yes, admitted Marcia, unruffled. That's all life is, just going around kissing people. Well, replied Horace emphatically, I must say your ideas are horribly garbled. In the first place, life isn't just that, and in the second place, I won't kiss you. It might get to be a habit, and I can't get rid of habits. Um, I, have, I can't get rid of habits underlined. Um, I don't know exactly why I underlined that, but I think I think it's because like this starts, she does kind of become a habit for him, maybe. Um, I may be reading way too much into that line as well. Um, but that's what I do as a literature student. I read too much into things. Um, problem is I've, I've uh, brought that into the rest of my life. I need a laugh track. Make my jokes funnier. Um, so yes. Now I'm going to go through just some quotes that I found, uh, either just beautiful or funny or, um, whatever. I'm going to. Use that as a jumping point to talk about more random things. Okay. During the Battle of Jassotiri, that's French, and I might have pronounced that wrong, but during this battle, he was sitting at his desk deciding whether or not to wait until his 17th birthday before beginning his series of essays on the pragmatic bias of the new realists. After a while, some newsboy told him that the war was over, and he was glad because it meant that Pete Brothers Publishers would get out their new edition of Spinoza's Improvement of the Understanding. Wars were all very well in their way, made young men self-reliant or something, but Horace felt that he could never forgive the president for allowing a brass, a brass band to play under his window on the night of the false armistice, causing him to leave three important sentences out of his thesis on German idealism. Um, and, and then there's like a, a long section uh, where Fitzgerald just making fun of Yale College. Um, let's see. To move in the literary fashion, I should say that this was all because when way back in colonial days, the hardy pioneers had come to a bald place in Connecticut and asked of each other, now what shall we build here? The hardiest one among them had answered, let's build a town where theatrical managers can try out musical comedies. How afterward they founded Yale College there to try the musical comedies on is a story everyone knows. At any rate, one December, Home James opened at the Schubert, and all the students encored Marsha Meadow, who sang a song about the blundering blimp in the first act and did a shaky, shivery, celebrated dance in the last. That's the introduction to Marsha. Um, that, that's like the first time you see her in the story. Um, we're only on page two here, but it, it's kind of, he's kind of like, like kind of digging at at Yale, um, as like oh it's just a place to uh like instead of like an intellectual college it's like big like one of the one of the main schools in the country, um he's just like oh it's a place to try out musical comedies on on the students there basically it's just all he's reduced it to. He was a uh, remarkably fanboyish towards Princeton, which is funny because he uh got. He failed out um, without grad. He didn't graduate. Um, let me see. Next one. I've already done the kiss. Upstairs, Horace paced the floor of his study. 
From time to time, he glanced toward Berkeley, waiting there in suave, dark red respectability, an open book lying suggestively on his cushions. And then he found that his circuit of the floor was bringing him each time nearer to Hume. There was something about Hume that was strangely and inexpressibly different. The diaphanous form still seemed hovering near, and had Horace sat there, he would have felt as if he were sitting on a lady's lap. And though Horace couldn't have named the quality of difference, there was such a quality, quite intangible to the speculative mind, but real nevertheless. Hume was radiating something that in all the two hundred years of his influence he had never radiated before. Hume was radiating Adder of Roses. So this is obviously after after Marcia has like sat in there in the chair and then she's left. So he, in, you, you kind of see the first part of that paragraph that I found funny. Um, it says, uh, open book lying suggestively on his cushions. Like the idea of, of the book almost, almost, turns him on in some sort of way just just he's still he's still pretty much all um philosopher at this point all academic but he's he's slowly he's slowly this is where he begins his i don't want to say decent because that that will make it seem like what he ends up doing is worse than academia when in fact it's just something completely different but he begins his transition or transformation, I think, is a is a better word, though. Um, and then see, she, uh, Marcia has invited him, invited Horace to come see her show. So, so on Thursday night, Horace Tarbox sat in an aisle seat in the fifth row and witnessed home James. Oddly enough, he found that he was enjoying himself. Um, he's he he couldn't imagine before that he would he would actually want to um. That he would actually like enjoy watching something that was not academic at all, just like uh, you know, vaudeville, but some sort of like just performance that's just kind of meant to be enjoyed visually. Um, his next step in his transformation. Um, is, all right, just so I can see you alone. I want to talk to you as we talked up in my room. Honey boy, cried Marcia, laughing. Is that what you want? To kiss me? Yes, Horace almost shouted. I'll kiss you if you want me to. The elevator man was looking at them reproachfully. Um, this was a definitely a different time. You know, we don't, we don't think of uh, people. I mean, we don't necessarily, we don't think a whole lot about people kissing in public unless they're going like over the top and, or being like kind of weird about it. Like, it's just kind of like, okay, it's, it's a normal thing now. It was much more of a, uh, of a no do back, back then, I think. Um, so we see him going from refusing to kiss her to being willing to, uh, to wanting to kiss her very, very much. Um, <laughs> a little bit. Um, you're talking about their daughter um because Marsha gets pregnant and this is more where her transformation begins is when when she um she gets pregnant and she can no longer do her um she can no longer do the head and shoulders she can no, no longer do her um, like dancing and such um, because she gets too pregnant. Where it just it's um, 
it's not healthy for her to continue exerting that much physical um, energy. Um, then that's also the same point in time when Horace starts starts uh, like starts doing his like trapeze work and stuff, um, like on a professional level for like more more money. He's a he has to he has to take over um, as as breadwinner, which he has not been up to this point. Um, Marshall was working so he could he could focus on his studies basically. Um, so he's finally forced to like sort of give up on his dream and do that. But um, he doesn't. He's, he obviously doesn't completely give up. He just almost gets distracted, I would say. And then we don't know if he ever makes it makes the transition back because at the end of the story as i as i read earlier he's um at the end of the story he he hasn't he just realized that he's he's made a mistake um somewhere along the way um but anyway what do we call her they rested a minute in happy drowsy content while horace considered We'll call her Marsha Hume Tarbox, he said at length. Why the Hume? Because he's the fellow who first introduced us. That's so, she murmured, sleepily surprised. I thought his name was Moon. So, I, I'm not sure if she's being funny here, or I don't. I don't know if he, he ever told her that he um, or if she remembers rather that he uh, that the chair was called Hume. Um. Okay, it's on the next page. To him, there was something infinitely pathetic about it, and for the first time in months, he began to turn over in his mind his own half-forgotten dreams. He had meant to write a series of books to popularize the new realism. Like I, I think I read that one, read that one earlier. Um, okay. Marsha received three hundred dollars in installment for the serial publication, which came at an opportune time. For though Horace's monthly salary at the Hippodrome was now more than Marsha's had ever been, young Marsha was emitting shrill cries when they, which they interpreted as a demand for country air. So early April found them installed in a bungalow in Westchester County, with a place for a lawn, a place for a garage, and a place for everything, including a soundproof, impregnable study in which Marsha faithfully promised Mr. Jordan she would shut herself up when her daughter's demands began to be abated and compose immortally, immortally illiterate literature. Um, the whole selling point of her book um, is is kind of stated that it's it's a uh, it's so bad that it's good. Um, he, he makes a little, he makes a Mark Twain reference in here. Like it's so um, colloquial. It's so like how every, how the every man would talk. It's, it's written in slang. Um, it's not necessarily bad, but like for someone coming from Horace's background as like a super like intellectual, super academic, super scholarly sort of thing, the idea that something like this would sell probably blew his mind. Um, so we've gone through most of the good quotes here. There's there's so many. Um, I hope you I hope you read it because um, otherwise you're probably like this has no point. He's just rambling, and that's 
that's pretty much what's happening here. Um, yeah, so I think I'm going to try to bring this back around to um, something a little more, with a little more of a point. Um, that transformation of the tar boxes that I mentioned earlier. Because um, at the start, they could not be more opposite. Horus has the brains, and Marsha uh, is the shoulders, right? Um, head shoulders. After being set up by Horus's cousin, um, who is the one... Um, is, is the moon that was mentioned in the um, in the name, when they were naming the kid. He's like, I thought, I thought it was a fellow named Moon. Um... That's that's the cousin that set him up. Um, Horace's transformation begins as soon as he starts dating um, dating Marcia. He starts falling for her. He's so he's so head over heels for her that he he starts to kind of be willing to give up. Like one of the first things um, he does is the kissing thing, and then he offers to drop out of of school so they can get married um she doesn't she doesn't like let him do that um and so that's why she's working overtime time to pay the bills while he uh actually i take that back she, he might actually drop out of school yeah so he did um he does rather um, give up going to school. It says, um, Horace Tarbox, who at 14 had been played up in the Sunday magazine sections of the Metropolitan newspapers, was throwing over his career, his chance of being a world authority on American philosophy by marrying a chorus girl. They made Marsha a chorus girl. But like all modern stories, it was a four and a half day wonder. Um, so they took a flat in Harlem. It's not necessarily all that important, other than it kind of like just shows that they didn't they didn't have a lot of money. They were relying on on her income because he was trying to he was still trying to work towards um, being uh, like the academic sort at this point. Um, he starts so that's like the first the first. Uh, thing that led to his transformation was was him wanting to kiss Marsha because before it um before that he had never even had any like idea of, of doing anything like that really it doesn't seem um he was so focused on his studies um so she's she's distracted him or um and then after that he he gives over his career to marry her um then he ends up going, she gets him, Marsha gets him to go to a gym because she's worried about him bent over his books all the time. Um, and so she, she makes a deal with him. She says, you go join a gym and I'll read one of those books from the brown row of them. Um, she offers to read some of the like philosophy books he has if he um, will go to the gym. She's not like, even thinking about this being a career for him. Um, she just wants him to kind of 
work out a little bit so he can be healthier because it's not necessarily healthy to sit in an office all day and not not or like bent, sit bent over books all day and never get up and like move move around and uh, work out she's where he's going to kind of waste away sort of but he he, he joins like he goes to like a trapeze like style gymnasium and he's doing like some tricks and stuff and then this guy comes in sees him um he's like you could make a lot of money doing this and so he's like, ha, 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 whatever. He goes home, and then he realizes Marsha has to quit work because um, she's she's far enough along in her pregnancy at this point where she um, she can no longer no longer do her her dances um, and perform like she wants to. So they do a little bit of math. They realize they're going to need more money, and so he he uh, he heads right back to the right back to the gym, finds the guy, and he's like, uh, were you serious about that? And the guy's like, yeah. Um, so he, he finds the right guy right guy to talk to um, after that guy. He points him in the right direction, um, and they get him they get him going on that. Um, so at this point, he's, he's just doing it to make money, right? Um, he starts to really, really enjoy it. Um, and then uh, Marsh is laid up in bed, pregnant for like two, two months or something. So this is when she writes her book, and that's when her – I think I briefly mentioned it earlier. That's when her transformation really starts. So Fitzgerald slowly – and at this point, you kind of realize what's happening as you're reading the story. You're like, okay, he's, he's, I, see, I kind of see what he's doing here. How's it going to work out? Um, it's just – like he's infinitely clever, Fitzgerald is, with these, with these short stories. Like his novels – and his short stories are completely separate and different. Like someone asked me, one of my friends asked me last night if if I liked Fitzgerald's novels or his short stories better. And I don't think I can answer that one way or another because they're two, they're just such different things. Um, I enjoy both of them equal. It almost just depends on what mood I'm in, which I would rather read. Um, so I can't really say one or the other. Because um, stuff like this is, it's just infinitely, infinitely clever. Um, so she writes the book while she's laid up. Um, he starts really enjoying doing his um, trapeze work. Um, and by the end of the story, they like we don't get much of like Marsha's view on it. She just, she seems to be like kind of, I mean, she seems to be enjoying doing the, doing the writing and stuff, but it, there's no, like, um, we don't get inside her head. Like we do Horace's. So like Horace is kind of like losing it a little bit. And she's like, cause his dream was to be the published, the published writer, um, the academic. And he, he realizes he's given up all of his dreams after having married married Marcia. Um, so there is that there's definitely that sense of sense of regret there. Um we're already sitting close to forty minutes here and I've rambled a lot. Um Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty much pretty much all I've got for this one. I don't wanna I don't wanna ramble on 
on too much too much more here. Um, I'd love to hear um, your thoughts on on this story. Um, I hope you I hope you read it um, before listening to me ramble. Maybe that that would help to fill in some gaps for sure. If you listened to all of this and didn't read it, thank you. Um, I would encourage you to go read go read the story. Um, if you haven't, um, we'll be doing Fitzgerald or Fitzy or F. Scott Fridays, um, whatever I feel like calling it that particular day. Every Friday um, is the goal. Um, we got short story Sundays. This week is A Day's Wait by Ernest Hemingway. It's like three pages long. Um, go ahead and read it. Um, uh, mentioned earlier, Cody's joining me for that one as well. Um, it's a, it's got layers. I think we might end up doing a second episode um, on it because, like, we we read it. We did the we did like I did the last short story um, Sunday with Hemingway was the first episode of the podcast and we kind of um just read through it and gave our sort of immediate reactions basically um i had like a couple of notes i'd read it once before um but i, I kind of want to go back and dive deeper into it I, I um cody sent me a an article on it the um this morning actually and uh it it made me want to dig deeper into the story um there's so much it's it's, it's a three-page story you can read it as a surface level story but Hemingway has this um has this iceberg theory that you might have heard before where he kind of you just you, you see what's on the surface is just like this little amount but like icebergs beneath the surface have like deep deep roots for lack of a better word like they go they go deep all you see is that top part so there's so much more to an iceberg than what you see and it's the same thing with uh, Hemingway's fiction for sure um he's not the only one but um yeah so definitely check back in on Sunday listen to that um we recorded that one before this one so that's uh that's interesting to me anyway um yeah that's all I've got for today. Um, keep on reading.